Welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. On today's Healing 101, I am joined by Professor Rory O'Connor, the Professor of Health Psychology at Glasgow University and Director of the Suicidal Behavioural Research Laboratory, the leading suicide and self-harm research group in Scotland. He is also the author of When It Is Darkest, Why People Die By Suicide and What We Can Do To Prevent It. Suicide can affect any one of us and one person dies by suicide every 40 seconds. Yet despite the scale of the devastation for family members and friends, suicide is still poorly understood. In today's episode, Professor O'Connor helps to untangle the complex reasons behind suicide and dispels any unhelpful myths. For those who might be trying to help someone vulnerable, it will provide indispensable advice on communication and stresses the importance of listening to fears and anxieties without judgment. You talk a lot, Rory, about the causes behind suicide and what actually leads up to that point where someone actually wants to take their own life. And you talk a lot about this feeling of hopelessness and despair. What can we do on a preventable level to stop that? So what we can do to prevent suicide, we first of all have to do more to understand it. And one of the things I've done, a sort of culmination of my research is I've developed this model of suicide to help us understand better why suicidal thoughts emerge in some people and not in others, and then why some people act on their thoughts of suicide. So my model is called the, it's a bit of a mouthful, the Integrated Motivational Volitional Model of Suicide, or for short, the the IMV model. But at at the heart of the IMV model, it's trying to bring together all of that complexity, but argue that although there are many different factors, that leads somebody to become suicidal. At the heart of it, most people become suicidal because they become trapped by the sense of mental pain, which is often triggered by feelings of defeat and or humiliation. And those feelings of defeat and humiliation are often potentially also triggered by loss, rejection, and shame. Now, then the obvious question is, well, what causes that sense of entrapment, that sense of being trapped or that hopelessness, that very specific mental pain? And part of that might be linked to loneliness. Part of it might be linked to early life trauma. Because we know early life trauma is a really strong risk factor for poor mental health and also suicide risk. But it could also be linked to these whole range of other factors. Bullying could be linked to low self-esteem, which is linked to relationships in childhood or in adolescence. Or it could be linked to unemployment or just feeling that you're not worthy to live in this world. And so for me... Going back to your question about then, if we're trying to prevent or what can we do to understand and then prevent suicide? Well, of course, yes, we need to make sure people have access to mental health services and they're tailored to their needs. But then we also have to ask ourselves wider questions like societal questions. But what aspects of society are contributing to poor mental health? What aspects of society make people feel more defeated, more humiliated and more trapped? 
and see suicide, sadly, as the only way out. In the UK, about 6,000 people die by suicide each year. That's 6,000 people from a whole range of different backgrounds can only see suicide as a way of ending their pain. Because suicide is about more often about ending pain rather than wanting to die. It's really sad. As you say, there's been such a peak in suicide rates, especially amongst young men. There's a specific age category where men seem to be really vulnerable to suicide. And I'd like to know why you think that is. Well, actually, the stark reality is in the UK, in every age group, men are more likely to die by suicide than women. And if you look just across the lifespan, it's about three quarters of all suicides are by men. Now, in terms of the age profiles, I think it's worth highlighting that if we just look across the age group or age span, is that suicide is pretty rare before puberty for both men and women or boys and girls. But then when puberty kicks in, you start to see this marked increase. And indeed, during after puberty, during adolescence, that's when you see the steepest onset of mental health problems, the steepest onset of suicidal thoughts, suicidal behavior, self-harm, and so on, and sadly, also suicide. Different gender identities are also at increased risk of suicide and suicidal behavior as well. Now, the question of why so many men, we don't know for certain why, um, and there's no simple explanation, but a number of factors are definitely at play. Now, the one which most commonly is mentioned is that men are most likely to use lethal methods of suicide. So it means, sadly, they're more likely to die when they engage in a suicidal act. So in clinical terms, we often call that case fatality. And the case fatality is sadly really high. And then also if you use more lethal methods and methods which maybe give less opportunity for intervention, the window to intervene gets smaller as well. But the stark reality is we know that men are less likely to seek help for mental health problems than women. And there's some data suggesting they may also seek help later. So then when they do seek help, the escalation in mental distress may have got greater. So there's lots of stuff going on there. But I think we as a society, we need to change and we need to support our young kids and thinking about social roles, problem solving, emotional mental health at that really early, early stage so we can maybe try to intervene. Because my fear is that the mental health of young people have been deteriorating, getting worse before COVID. And now I'm, I'm concerned about the people most disadvantaged, most vulnerable, such as people with pre-existing mental health problems, going through now another economic crisis could be really, really dangerous. I've sadly lost a few friends to suicide and their families have gone on to fundraise and create James's Place. I don't know if you've come across that. And then the Charlie Waller Foundation. Yeah, no, no, absolutely no uh, James's Place is a really good example, Pandora, of how trying to do something differently is really important and trying to set up a space which isn't traditionally available to men, which isn't a clinical space, but it's a way in which men can get support. Exactly. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. You talk about the 14 myths mm -hmm. that surround suicide. Can you touch on the sort of most relevant ones? A really good one, I think, in terms of myth to start with is if you ask somebody about suicide, that it plants the idea in their head. And there's just no evidence for that at all. Indeed, there's evidence for the opposite, for the contrary. The evidence suggests, actually, that if you ask somebody directly whether they're suicidal, it could be the start of a life-saving conversation. And there's research that's shown that asking that question, 
people are more likely to get the help that they need. In every case that I'm aware of, somebody asking that question, and people often tell me their own stories, the person who's been asked the question often feels a sense of relief, especially if nobody's ever asked them that question before. Because suicidal thoughts are often all mixed up with shame and and regret and fear and anger and sadness. And so actually somebody asking that question, just listening to them is really validating. And so you're not going to do any harm as my, I suppose my take home. It can only do good. Another one, again, it's one that people for many years have told me that they still, I mean, sadly, this was a myth that um, if somebody is in a really dark place and are feeling really depressed, what sometimes happens is that in that sense of depression and they're trying to work out how do they solve the problems or the weight of their shoulders or whatever's going on in their life. But in the depths of that depressive episode, they resolve to take their own life and go, well, actually, the solution to my pain is to end my life. And so the myth there is that people sadly too often have thought that their loved one who had been depressed, they seemed to be fine. There was like this, this elevation in mood or this lifting of mood and they felt falsely reassured. So this was the method is if there is no explanation for a, or unexplained lifting of mood does not mean the person's necessarily recovering. And so as their mood lifts because they found to their mind the solution to their pain, as they sort of exit that really depressed state, they now maybe have the motivation and the capacity to plan and carry out the suicidal act. And so my message then is, I would say that's warning signs and please check in with the person. Now, of course, if the person has sought treatment and the treatment started to work or the crisis has been resolved, well, of course, that would explain the mood lifting. So that's less reason to be concerned. It's, so the key message is this unexplained improvement in mood. So if you think that a family member or someone close to you, a lover or a friend is at risk of taking their own life, what would you advise them to do? The first thing is, I mean, relates to something I said earlier to with this ask, connect, show compassion. So if you're concerned about a friend, I would just explore with them how they're doing, check in with them. And there's this thing, um, which I think Roman Kemp did, the DJ, or the capital DJ guy, and I was involved in a documentary with him, I think it was last year, I think it was. And one of the things, he met a group of friends in Kent, I think it was, and they did this thing which was, Always ask twice. So if you have a friend who you're worried about and you say, are you doing okay? Yeah, people say, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then it's about always asking that second time, are you really okay? And it's so true, and, and it's something we've been saying for years, and that sort of checking in that you're trying to go beyond people's standard response of, your standard response is, no, I'm not going to disclose that, right? So my message is always ask twice. And then the second bit related to that is, if you are concerned that they might be suicidal specifically, I would just ask them directly and just say, are you thinking of taking your own life? And your biggest fear by asking that question is, My, what if they say yes? That is your biggest fear. Now, you have to be careful because if your biggest fear is hopefully say no, right? you'll convey that consciously or subconsciously. And chances are the person will say, no, I'm fine. Because they get a feeling that you don't want to know the real answer. Because it's frightening, right? So it's trying to be open to the answer of that question being, yes, I have a thought of killing myself. And then if the person says yes, the key advice I always give is 
just trying to be non-judgmental, validate how they're feeling. So what I mean, when I say validation, all I mean is just say back and go, that must be really difficult for you. That sense of validation is so important. And don't minimize, try not to minimize it because it would have been a big deal for the person. And then also, you don't have to solve their problems. What you're trying to do is that be that conduit of providing a safe space for somebody that they feel they can open up to you. And it's not, you don't have to solve their problems. It's helping them then go, well, actually, maybe you should see your GP or is there somebody else you can speak to who can help you? And so that would be my advice. Always, always, always ask the question. Ask it twice. And then as long as you're compassionate, non-judgmental, treat somebody as a human being, that sense of connection, you're not going to do any harm, but it could save somebody's life. I think that's absolutely crucial and, and brilliant advice. And Rory, if you yourself are the one who's feeling suicidal and you don't know where to go, what do you do? What I would urge anybody to do or everybody to do who maybe struggles with suicidal thoughts is create a safety plan. And a safety plan is just a simple one pager. It's got six steps, but what it helps the person do, it's usually co-created with a healthcare professional, a mental health care professional. But if you don't have that, I would think about creating it yourself, maybe collaborate and speaking to somebody trust to talk through it with them would be ideal. But that safety plan, what it does is, it helps you identify the warning signs that a crisis might be escalating. So how do you start to feel when you when that crisis starts to escalate? Or are your behaviors changing? Is your sleeping different? Do you get really agitated? Do you feel trapped? All these things in terms of the warning signs that something's escalating. And then the safety plan, you basically try and think in advance, what sort of things you could do to distract yourself in the, in the moment of escalating crisis? And then you go right down to identifying somebody you could contact, either a friend or if you haven't got a friend or somebody close to you, a professional who you can contact when you think you can't keep yourself safe. And it also talks about keeping your environment safe so you don't have ready access to a means of suicide. And so creating that safety plan, you try ideally you create it when you're not in crisis. And it's like, it's like an emergency plan. So it's in advance. This is what I'm going to do. It's like having your first aid kit, but it's like in a, a mental first aid kit. So that those different levels. One is your self-care in terms of your safety planning, which hopefully will include somebody you can contact if you're really, really struggling. And then obviously, bearing in mind, there are online resources, crisis helplines, your GP. But if all else, if you really, really think you can't keep yourself safe, go to the emergency department, go to the A&E department. Rory, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today and I just can't thank you enough and for all the work that you're doing. I think it's absolutely incredible and uh, yeah, thank you so much. Lovely to meet you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Mm-hmm.